So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. How are you doing? Uh, this week's show is about sport. You weren't expecting me to say that, were you? <laughs> You weren't expecting that I'd have got caught up in World Cup fever. Um, it's not often in my career I voluntarily choose to talk to sports people, it's true. Uh, but that's because sport isn't exactly my speciality. But I think I made it through this interview today because really it's not about sport. It's about people. It's about motivation. It's a really fascinating insight into the grit and determination and physical stress people endure to become a world champion. It's an interview with an Olympics performance scientist. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, Before we get going though, thank you so much for all the feedback you sent us on last week's episode about recurrent miscarriage. Uh, Jess, for example, uh, sent the following message and we've had dozens of emails like this. Uh, Ollie, thank you so much for covering the subject. Myself and my husband are currently going through the same thing. Listening to Steve and Joe was like listening to our own story. This topic isn't spoken about, and it was lovely to hear a happy ending too. Uh, Thank you, Jess, and all the best with your baby making. Uh, Richard as well says, Ollie, I just cried the whole one-hour train journey into work listening to your episode on miscarriage. Having had four years of IVF, having spent over £25,000, my wife injecting herself over 400 times, I've lost my closest friends along the way, but I am now the proud father of an 11-week-old girl. I'm so glad your guest's story ended happily like mine did, but it's important to remember so many people don't have that happy ending. I'm hypersensitive to this pain now, and I try every day to ensure that I'm not unwittingly upsetting someone. Our pregnancy and birth wasn't even announced on Facebook. Richard, you make a good point. Thank you. Um... Thanks as well to those of you in the past few weeks who've been supporting the show uh, on social media or by submitting a review to iTunes or by sending us some cash. Lauren, for example, says, uh, Ollie, you've got me through some incredibly long days on maternity leave. Ever since listening to your episode Inside Amazon's Warehouse, I've been telling everyone why I won't shop with Amazon anymore. And today I cancelled my Prime subscription and redirected my money to your podcast. Uh, Amazing. She she really has done this. I checked. Uh, Lauren is now sending us £7.99 of beer money per month instead of subscribing to Amazon Prime. I think that is actually slightly more than Amazon Prime membership. But anyway, what a great idea. Uh, I wouldn't want to deprive you all of the grand tour. But if you are giving up your subscription to anything else that you don't really want, and you have some money sloshing around, please do consider supporting the show. You will get in return the smug satisfaction of supporting independent podcasting and 30 episodes per year. Uh, It's monmanwith2ends.co.uk, then click beer money. Uh, PayPal is fine. Thank you. Uh, Right, on this week's show, you will learn what your fast twitch fibres are and what that's got to do with a chicken drumstick. You will learn how to reduce your plastic footprint and you'll learn where to find your friendly local kink market. Let's go. 
on this week's Modern Man. If you've never injured yourself, you haven't trained hard enough. That's the reality of it. Oxygenated muscles, optimised recovery and post-Olympic blues. How to train a champion. Dragging the cold prongs of a fork over their naked skin very softly. And Alex Fox is a sensation at sensory deprivation. But first, it's time to talk trends. It's the zeitgeist with the man who's been engaged to the same lady for longer than most people's marriages. It's Ollie Pitt. Weddings are expensive. Last week, you were challenged by man fan Stefan to have a shit phone for a week and mm-hmm. see how many robocalls you can end up enrolling yourself upon. Mm-hmm. I can see your Nokia 3310 sitting looking at me. The reason you had the phone was to try and get as many robocalls as you could. So these are the calls where companies cold call you and claim that you've had an injury or something so that you can end up in their web of lies and marketing. How did it go? Well, first, I had to set up an alter ego because I didn't want people contacting me directly. So I've got the separate number, wanted separate name, separate date of birth, everything. When Ollie Pitt has free agency to choose any name in the world Mm -hmm. to... (laughs) To become for the week, what does he choose? He chooses yeah. John Fisher. John Fisher? Yeah. I knew that I was going to enter loads of competitions, like dodgy competitions, and I thought, I want a legitimate sounding name so that if I win... Legitimate sounding? Yeah, because I reckon that they choose those competitions. They literally just have a Who's list. Who's got the most boring sounding name on this list? Everyone knows a John Fisher. You know a That's, John Fisher. I don't know a John Fisher. I, I don't know anyone with the surname Fisher. I do know John. You do now. You're looking at him. So you've become John Fisher. Tell me about John. John's born 21st of July 1985, if you want to get him a birthday card. Right, His yeah. number's 07497367473. And I'm getting that out there because I want people to just start cold calling me. Yeah. Or John, sorry. Sure. His email address is damampod at gmail.com. Boring John Fisher's email address would be john underscore fisher69 at hotmail.com. No, this is where you're wrong because John Fisher set up his email address when he was 16 years old. So he was him and his mate. Demand pod. But, but because because I had to have some association with then when he was 16 years old podcasting wasn't even a thing. Yeah, but, well, well, maybe he meant pog it's a typo. The point is it was a stupid email address that he now regrets he's in his 30s. I see what you mean but I still think I'd have gone like lazyfrogxx at gmail.com to be more convincing. Why lazy frog? Exactly. John Fisher, mm. he has an Exa card and a Tesco's club card. He's Mr Normal, isn't he? Yeah. Does John Fisher buy uh, Tesco Finest Mince Pies at Christmas, or does he go for the normal ones? Oh, Finest at Christmas. Yeah, but not the rest of the year, right? But well, if they're early mince pies, like in October, yeah. he'll just go for the normal ones. Yeah, of course he would, yeah. yeah, yeah don't need the treat in October, do you? Just the mince pie itself is a treat. Exactly. So, uh, what did John Fisher do online to try and attract some dirty robocalls? Well, first he went straight for competitions, because uh-huh. he thought, well, you know, all they want is your data to give you know by giving you away free stuff. So he signed up to... UKMums.tv for 50 quid's worth of vouchers for Cheers, who are a photo book company. He also signed up to a Telegraph competition to win some whiskey. <laughs> he, uh, he signed <laughs> up to... Immediately, this is not a consistent profile. But no, no, on, no, yeah. not at all. But, but, but he's, he, he likes a competition. He's a bit of a, yeah. bit of a gambler. He tried gambling on the train, but sure. apparently train Wi-Fi doesn't let you gamble. By the way, his Nectar card, it was delivered... But no, delivered to where? Because you had to make his up an address. address. Yeah. <laughs> his, his actual address. Yeah. But the other party who lives at that address was not forewarned of his existence. <laughs> so so it's been they've been posted back. That's also his club card. I don't understand. You put a real address in mm-hmm. and now someone you don't know is getting all of John Fisher's post. No, no, no. I put I put my address in, but I didn't tell Pip, my partner, about John Fisher's existence. Oh, I see. Okay. So then she was like, Who's John Fisher? <laughs> 
I'm right. going to send this back because we live in a rented house, right? So we get loads of people's mail that have lived there throughout the years. Yes. So John Fisher's nectar card turns up. Pip's like, this is going back. What do you do when it's a birthday card, by the way? Not for John Fisher because he doesn't exist, but when for it is for a previous tenant. Just hold it up to a very bright light, see if there's any money in there, <laughs> and then send it back if there's not. <laughs> so I have a statute of limitation rule, which is in the first three years of moving into a property, I do all I can to send it on. After that, I think if they don't know where you live, mate, they're not really your friend. He's also got a Facebook account now with his Nokia 3310, which is also his profile picture because he likes this phone so much because right. the battery lasts ages. Okay. And... On that, he's decided to like loads of debt management companies. Interesting. Yeah. And he now has one friend. Bella Wilson works for Tribunal Claim, nationwide employment solicitors. It's not a robocall, but it's proof, isn't it, that people like Bella, if that is a person rather Mm -hmm. than a a creation of that company that she's working for, do actually go around looking for the kind of people who might use their services. Yeah, not just that, but this was within minutes John was astounded. Was he? Yes. He was. Yeah. So I've done all of that, or John's done all of this. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the robocall side of things, yeah. he's got none. None? Not a single robocall. Now, do you think that's because it just takes time for your number to end up on a junk call system and then for those data lists to be sold? Because you've genuinely only had a week to do this <laughs> challenge, and I wonder if we gave you six months whether you'd be getting a lot. That's why I went for the debt management and the mm. sort of loan people, because I thought they're going to jump on it really quickly. Yeah, they're not called sharks for nothing. Yeah, exactly. But I do think that. I think somewhere the number is out there now. It's on a spreadsheet. It's waiting to be processed. And mm. at some point it will dial and it will be, hello. OK, well, let's keep it going. Let's see if you get a robocall before the end of the series. Actually, I mean, let's see if you get a robocall before the battery dies. Yeah, that could conceivably be the end of the series, couldn't it? That's a good idea. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. The thing is, I mean, Stefan didn't say what country he was in when he wrote in with this uh, challenge. I wonder if this is more prevalent in other parts of the world than it is here. Because I do get these calls, but I only get about one a week. Well, I looked at the stats in the UK. So the ICO, which is the Information Commissioner's Office, right? And they said there's there's over 3,000 automated call concerns, they call them, were reported in May. Which is quite a lot, but when you think 3, about... 3,000? 3,000, just That's over 3,000. That's not a lot. I reckon if we asked our audience, probably one in three has had one of these calls in the last week, so 3,000 is nothing. I mean, even yeah, in terms did... of our audience, it would be nothing, never mind the country. Well, it did seem quite low, because then I started looking at the states, and it seems to be... whenever you, If you Google robocalls, it will be articles about robocalls in the United States, and there it seems to be a huge problem Mm -hmm. so in 2017 there were four and a half million complaints so not calls that's just complaints and they reckon that 122 million calls were made in march just promoting 0 percent interest rates so why do you think this is genuinely a trend in the united states and maybe it hasn't quite bitten here yet because i think it's just a bigger market and it's a more vulnerable one so if you look if you look at start looking at the stories of the people that are getting targeted in the united states it starts to sort of like paint a pretty sordid horrible picture so there was a scheme that were targeting specifically chinese people chinese last names and the caller was basically saying that they work for the chinese consulate and they have raised or immigrants rather have lost 2.5 million dollars just on this one scam so they're targeting specific groups of people mm. so the ico they were saying that in the uk the numbers have gone down loads so they've literally i think they've since last year it's gone down by like 10 or 20 percent and that's to do with just people being informed about it so people know about it and also the software is much better here so you know for blocking calls and that kind of stuff and i just don't think that's the case in the united states but also is it really that hard to investigate who's 
sending you the call because when I got one last week, and this was since we posed the challenge to you, so I was just much more aware to kind of document what was going on. It was from an 0161 number. So it was a call centre in Manchester, and it was a robocall. And of course I picked it up and I almost instinctively hung up without even thinking, oh, I should journalistically research this so I can tell Ollie what it was. But it seems to me like I could have rung that number back. What would have happened if I did? It's not like it's untraceable. What they're doing in the States is that the calls are travelling through multiple carriers and multiple networks. So they are difficult to pinpoint. It could have been that that call was made through that, but actually the original caller came from somewhere else. So you're not getting any closer to finding out where it came from. And the so it volume... could be a, a centre based in Russia or India or anywhere. Yeah. It and just the volume looks like of it's calls. from Manchester. That's it. The volume of calls as well is, is inhibiting pinpointing it you know that that one example 122 million in march alone for one scam how the like how the hell can you keep track of that you can't so it's probably something that's just gonna exist i think that the robocalls themselves will probably get far more sophisticated so it could actually be good news that in the uk we're not yet as vulnerable as they are in other parts of the world to this yes so but, we've got to keep an eye on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Yes. Don't know what we're going to do about I it. I know, I know. I just felt like that's the way I should wrap up. That's what they'd say on Watchdog, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ollie. We'll keep an eye on it. Let's give this number out for people that have been affected by this issue and then they can call me. <laughs> that's not a terrible idea. What? No, I know. That's why I suggested it. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. so, you know, right. if this issue has affected you, yes. you can call us yeah. or me you, well, or John, John, sorry. Call John. Call John yeah. on 07497 yes. 367 mm. 473. I'll have more for you next week. <laughs> Thanks, Ollie. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> no, don't say goodbye because I've got to pose your challenge for next week's show. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. Let's yeah. get back to back to business. It is from Man Fan Mira who says, I'm a vegan, and I was intrigued by Ollie Peart's veganism in the last series, but then he stopped. <laughs> I was intrigued as well. You didn't... You, you stopped talking about it, but you you are still... I'm, pe- I'm pescatarian. Yeah, you're... Yeah. yeah. I, d- I, don't, I don't eat, like, you know, cows that have been shot in the You animals. dabble. Uh, she says, can Ollie try the Beyond Burger? I mean, if it's not meat, then yeah. So, have you not heard about this? No. Really? I mean, you actually are someone who doesn't eat cow anymore. Don't you miss burgers? Because yeah. I've seen this all over Facebook. I'm not using Facebook. Okay, that's true. Well, basically, what I know about this is there's this really popular burger substitute in the US that's sold out. Right. And I don't think it's available in the UK, but it bleeds. When you bite into it, it actually, you're making a face. Yeah, well, because... No, but then you feel like you're eating... It's it's for people like you. It's for people that have converted from uh, carnivorism... Mm-hmm into flexible vegetarianism. Yeah, but what if you're someone that, like, their burgers cooked a little bit more that they didn't bleed? Then you wouldn't get one, would you? But that's not what we're discussing, is it? <laughs> I mean, what's that got to do with anything? The point is, it's a phenomenon. Wouldn't you be interested, Ollie, to try- well, you're going to do it, to try and see if you can get hold of a burger that tastes like a burger, but it's not a burger? Yeah, okay, yes. In that respect, yes, I would be intrigued, because the thing I found with veggie burgers is that the ones that try and replicate meat... Mm. I avoid, like the plague, because they just taste like salty, chewy, weird dough. So yeah. if they've got one that actually is the texture of meat, I'm not sure I can remember what meat is like. Well, this Maybe. will be the interesting uh, yeah. exercise of this week's challenge. Yeah, okay, yeah. No, well, as usual, I'm up for it, and if I don't do it, then you'll just get mad, so I'll do it. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks. 
Hello, Mam fans. I'm Amanda, founder of Less Plastic. Less Plastic helps businesses and community organisations to use less plastic in their professional roles. And here are my tips for using less plastic. Tip number one, try to eliminate single-use plastic out of your life. So that would involve plastic bags, plastic straws, plastic coffee cup lids, and even the paper coffee cups are lined with plastic, and single-use plastic water bottles and other drinks bottles. These are used literally for 10 minutes, but will last in our environment for hundreds of years. Tip number two is to try to avoid buying food that has excessive plastic packaging. So one way to do this is to try to shop local and buy things loose. Also talk to your local store owners. They're often more receptive to feedback from local customers, so you have more sway there. Even if you're in a supermarket and buying bananas or onions or anything really, don't pick up those plastic bags. Either take them loose or you can either make your own or buy some little lightweight nets produce bags which you can use instead to organize your shopping choosing food in glass jars is also a very good way of avoiding excessive plastic packaging Okay, so tip number three is to try to cut out plastic in the bathroom. So this would mean shampoo and conditioner bottles, whether you're able to try using a shampoo bar, like a soap bar instead, and also instead of um, shower gels um, and hand washes, soap bars so much better for the environment and create less plastic waste. Even with cleaning products, instead of having a different plastic bottle for every different surface in the house that you're cleaning, we actually just go for diluted white vinegar spray. I just refill an old cleaning spray and use that on any surface. And it's obviously cheaper and it's also better for the environment. Um, you're buying less plastic bottles. My white vinegar does come in a plastic bottle, but because I dilute it with water, I use considerably less plastic and with makeup and toiletries, it's really just reviewing how much you need. And also these days you can find quite a few products now that either come in aluminium tins or in cardboard packaging. You can find out more tips and strategies on lessplastic.co.uk. Thank you. Thanks to Amanda for her life hacks. Sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. Their developers have baked in tutorials covering the basics through to expert tips to really get the best possible listening experience. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, when was the last time you put your body through an intense physical challenge? Uh, Maybe you trained for a marathon, maybe you just did a sports day at work, but I bet what you didn't do is hire a performance scientist. If you had done, you might have done better. By the way, I know that the double Olympic champion Lizzie Yarnold listens to this podcast, so Lizzie, I'm not talking to you here, just everybody else. Dr Steve Ingham has led a team of 200 scientists in support of Team GB and Paralympics GB and has supported over a 1,000 athletes, of which over 200 have achieved world or Olympic medals. Most notably, the Olympic champion Jessica Ennis-Hill, who Steve started working with when she was just 18. But initially, Steve's dream was to be an athlete himself. You have to choose your parents very carefully to be a sprinter. 
and I forgot to do that. You've got to have a certain element of genetics to produce a high-level performance in that, in that sport. At the same time, being a rubbish sprinter was, was my way of actually trying to work out why am I not as quick as somebody else, and, and that was a, a set me on a path to trying to discover more about what makes people go fast and what doesn't. So how did you improve Jessica Ennis Hill's 800 metres? <laughs> there's, there's lots of things uh, and you, you, you try and make sure you prioritise the thing that's going to give you the biggest return on investment for, certainly for a heptathlete they're literally spinning plates and remind me how many events are involved in the heptathlon my Latin is not amazing seven 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 uh, they, they've got all sorts of different priorities and so they have to if you turn a heptathlete into an eight, a great 800 metre runner what will happen is that you will reduce the ability in, in some of the other events. And is that focus or is that physical strength? That's, that's physical. So we're all made of fast twitch and slow twitch fibres. You've got more uh, slow twitch fibres in your calf. You can see that a chicken leg is redder than a chicken breast and that's got more haemoglobin, myoglobin, very good at ca- taking the oxygen out of the blood. Big blocks of chest muscle uh, for the chicken to, to flap the wing. We're all built in different ways and so a heptathlete is ultimately a power athlete, so they're full of fast-twitch fibres. They're not very good at endurance. Mm. If you train for a marathon, you won't get stronger. If you train just weight training, you won't get good at marathon running. And so there's an opposite pull effect. That's something I have to be very careful of. I can improve Jess's 800 time loads by investing loads of training, but a high jump would be rubbish. One of the big changes that we made for Jess, as an example, is... That when I looked, first looked at the training program, there's 10 training, pro, t- training sessions per week for Jess with shot put and javelin and etc. And I would say, why, why is that session there and why is that session there? Why is that on at 10 o'clock on a Monday and that one at, at 11 o'clock on a Monday? And the question was just convenience, you know, that's, that's sort of handy. Mm-hmm. As opposed to be thinking about, well, if you've got a hard 200 meter session, that's going to make you feel quite uncomfortable for a while so you need to allow the time to recover before you can give full effort on the other sessions so actually one of the first things that we could do was just optimize recovery without changing the contents of the cake mix we could just make sure it was baked properly and so that in itself is gives quite good gain some people i guess think that coaches get the glory when things go well but actually, you know, what are they contributing? People feel, I think, sometimes a bit like with talent agents, I guess, you know, that people have latched themselves onto people who have exceptional talent anyway. So, of course, they're going to get a big film role. And what's that got to do with the agent? Did you sometimes think, like, you know, it's great when one of your uh, protégés gets a medal, but at the same time, people will say, well, they had that talent anyway. What have you done? What have you contributed? How do you define what you've done? I think it's a good point, and I... Um I write about this in my book, actually, about an athlete that that I thought was potentially the strongest talent I've ever seen, a girl called Laura Finucane. You won't have heard of her, I don't expect, unless you're a family relative. She had everything, absolutely everything. She was physiologically gifted. She was, she was hardworking. She was diligent. Uh, she knew how to bury herself in a hole in a training program. She had the limb length, the lung size, everything. And it just didn't work out. And I think that that... That pursuit for these these goals is is just as important as the accolade at the end. I'd say that for every athlete who has to put all of the work in over the over the many years to get to the top, uh, they've had somebody journey with them 
and the, the, word, the, the word coach actually comes from the origin is, is, is en route from Vienna to Budapest there's a town called Koch's that was journeying with your tutor that scholar has, has experienced the coach journeys with them all the way feels the pain, feels the, the difficult moments just as much but potentially will be thinking about it when they're not at the track or the, or the swimming pool and increasing the support team and the, the team behind the team has to do that too uh, they have to go toe to toe with the time away from home the graft and so if any coach gets a bit of uh, limelight or, or praise, I, I wouldn't begrudge them at all. So what went wrong for Laura? Well, if you can imagine uh, a kudu antelope on the African plains, over the many years, those kudu have optimised their limb length. If you've got very long limbs, then you're going to be quick to get away from the lion. But if they're too short... Then, then you're probably not going to be quick enough and you might get eaten. Uh, but however, the, the limb length that allows you to be quick also is more fragile. So horses uh, with longer limbs are more likely to break. <clears throat> so there's this middle ground. So over the years, many, many athletes with, with long limbs have not only been blighted by injury, but it's the, it's the bit that gets them to the top. Mm. And so you're constantly on this tightrope. So for Laura, she was always really prone and susceptible to, to injury. So we had her um, doing modified training, training on grass, which is lower impact, for example, training on treadmills, training on uh, treadmills that lift a, a proportion of your body weight, training at altitude, so it overloads the physiology, uh, training in pools, all sorts of different methods to try and get her to a point where she could be in one piece to, to uh, get to the Olympics. But, um, but it just didn't work. So... That was a kind of a failure of just physiological serendipity yeah. Yeah. and coaching together. Do you think if there'd yeah. been a different plan, it might have worked for it? Yeah, very much so. So constantly you're developing the know-how and the insight and the lessons, are applied lessons from working with athletes. Knowing what I know now, I think there's a whole bunch of things that we might have tried. So that's, that's, a, that's a benchmark or that's a, that's a boundary that's constantly moving forward. And I often see athletes now, and I think, oh, I'd love to have launched this idea with you uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> we didn't know about it then. What's an example of an idea that you've stumbled into along the way? So when you warm up for an event, uh, what you tend to find, what I observed for maybe five or six years or so, note-taking on athletes, they, they would go for a bit of a jog, uh, 15 minutes or so, and they'd do a bit of limbering up, a bit of stretching, and then they would do some short bursts of activity some sort of sprints they call it strides for example and most sports would do a, a pattern like that whether they're, they're running or rowing or paddling that routine is their way of thinking right I think I'm warm I think I'm ready I shouldn't spend too much of my energy though because I need to be able to give it full effort on the on the track physiologically that doesn't make sense because you need to you need to ramp up your your oxygen uptake your bloodstream your heart rate as quickly as you can at the beginning of the race there's always a lag to that. There's a, it's a bit of a ramp. It goes, it goes up relatively slowly. It doesn't go immediately up. But what you can do is if you do something quite hard and prolonged for 20 to 30 seconds or so, rather than these short, sharp efforts, it lifts the physiology up, gets the muscles more oxygenated and warmer. Then you're normally as an athlete. You're locked in a room with all your competitors and they snarl at each other for 20 minutes. It clears some of the... The, some of the lactic acid away but it also retains this oxygenation of your muscles so you can start faster 
and at, towards the end of a race you're less fatigued because the race is all about maintaining a speed but it's also the one who slows down the least. So talk me through some of the psychological barriers that there are to athletes fulfilling their potential along the way because whenever I see documentaries about this subject and you're following an Olympian throughout the process it is a fucking long journey isn't it sometimes you took seven eight years someone not knowing if they're even going to qualify and you know in the case of a diver for example having to go to the pool every day for three hours in the morning not drink you know only eat certain foods yeah how do you coach them psychologically through those things many teams have psychologists that work with the coach so that they're they're tuning their messages very specifically for the athlete. A chap called Sam Macora down at the University of Kent got a bunch of cyclists to, to do a test to exhaustion, got them on a bike and last as long as you can at a set power output. And intermittently he would flash uh, some dots up on a screen and prime them with a, with a pattern. It looks like a wallpaper pattern, but subliminally he would prime people with, with a face that they wouldn't consciously recognise. And when they were presented with happy faces, uh, they went for longer. When they were presented with sad faces, they tired earlier. And their perception of effort was harder. This is harder than normal. And so when we saw this sort of work, we thought, <coughs> how do we turn up on a day-to-day basis? And how are we talking to, to athletes? Because the same is true of words. Whether we, we talk about, you know, if we said to a, an athlete, oh, are you tired today? Mm. They'll go, oh, yeah, I'm probably tired. If you say, how's your energy today? Are you ready to go? You're more likely to activate them to, to think uh, positively. When you're working with an athlete, you have to think about the, the kind of goal in mind. What's it going to be like on the day? For, for many athletes now, 2020 uh, is the next goal or maybe 2024. And they'll know there's a date and destiny for, with that moment. And so you can start imagining what it'll be like, visualizing it. Uh, the number of people there, the the hustle, the bustle. Like Commonwealth Games, for example. Mm. It's, to be honest, the, the standards to win a lot of the Commonwealth medals isn't that high. But going to a multi-sport environment where there's 60,000 people mm. shouting for Australians as they were recently, that's a good experience to have under your belt. Performing under that level rather than, I don't know, the Bedford what, um, open meeting where there's seven people and a couple of pigeons. That in itself doesn't really relate. So I'm about to run the 200 metres. Are you? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't guess, would you? <laughs> what am I thinking just before the starting pistol is fired? What should I be thinking? For an event like the hurdles or something quite short and sharp, you don't have a lot of time to think about it. And so one of the methods that, that uh, coaches will use is try and simplify to give people focus and, and that in itself will remove the distractions for longer events you might need to be think, thinking about the eventualities what might, what might happen, how the event unfolds uh, so, so for middle distance running for example you need to observe a number of principles and, and uh, uh, guidelines so that you get it right not running too wide so you're not wasting effort this isn't what I'm thinking just before the starting pistol goes no you can't think all that but you can if you if you prioritize the two or three key ideas I've got to get that bit right then I've got to get that bit right and then if this happens this is how I respond to it because otherwise you're just blindly running your race so for Jess if you if you watch the video back of the moment that she her name is called out the start of a heptathlon, normally there are 20 or 30 athletes, 20 or 30 coaches and not a lot else. It's quite quiet. 
It's normally empty, even at the Olympics. In London, it was full to the rafters and absolutely went bananas when Jess's name was called out. You can see the stress in her eyes, but she takes a big breath in and composes herself. The first hurdle is your enemy. If you hit the first hurdle, you've had a bad hurdles. If you have a bad hurdles, you have a bad heptathlon because mm. it's a big scorer. And so rather than just thinking, have an explosive start, don't hit the first hurdle, careful over the second hurdle, her cue was gazelle. That bouncy, athletic, uh, effortless movement of, of being able to bound over the hurdles uh, as a gazelle would. And that's, that was her focus. How um, did you come up with that? Oh, it wasn't me. That was, uh, that was far too clever for me. That was Tony Minicello, her coach, as well as uh, psychologist Pete Lindsay, who discussed it. What do you want to be thinking about on the, on the start line? And simplifying that to the point that she just doesn't have to worry about anything else. With swimmers, for example, you see them come in, don't you, into the pool wearing those earphones. Mm. Is that just because at that level there's such a small difference, fractions of a second, between first, second and third? Actually, literally the song they're listening to before they take into the pool might make the difference? Music has been found to, to really change mood and uh, to, to be fired up, to be ready to go. But again, that should be based upon their personality type. If you've got somebody in a dressing room of footballers who's quite extroverted, they might be bouncing around the place. Certainly a rugby dressing room is not a pleasant place to be just before a game. They are fired up, as they have to be, because they're running at each other. The introverted types might be thinking, I need to spend time on my own to get the best out of myself. And so if someone is really revved up before the 50-metre butterfly and they need to calm down, they might be selecting different types of, of tracks or um, if they need to, to pep themselves up. Are good athletes just good at dealing with physical pain? Because this much hard training is going to hurt. For Mo Farah and I, we experience the same pain. He's just running faster, actually double the speed, but that, by the by, he will experience the same metabolic consequences of effort um, and that will sensitise nerve endings and, and you will listen to that. There's some interesting studies just recently uh, where they've shown that the, the nerve feedback to the brain, what's called the afferent feedback, the efferent is from brain to, ner- to muscles, afferent is from muscles to brain. If you blunt and block that afferent feedback, uh, you can push yourself further and you can produce more effort. So a lot of the time this is sort of indicating that you stop because of your brain and your mind defeating you besides injury and illness, where you might break down because you've pushed yourself too hard. So whilst we might just be thinking, my legs are aching, I'm suffering, my bum's hurting from sitting on this bike for 20 minutes, I'm, I'm getting sweaty, that's uncomfortable, athletes distract themselves. Now you can do something very specifically. If you're indoors, you can entertain yourselves. Uh, you can put music on, that helps. Uh, Mo Farah watches football matches, which coincides with being a 90-minute run, which is perfect. But athletes, by and large, use a, a technique where they distract themselves. They dissociate and they go to their happy place and they think about other things, whether that's connecting with nature, um, working out their finances or, or thinking about other people, breaking it down into small chunks so that they're not attaching it to the discomfort that they're feeling. And that, that tactic, we, we can all use that. We can apply that in the same way. 
Are there pre-sports rituals that you've encountered along the way with some of the people you've been coaching that you've actually had to coach them out of? I can't go into naming names here, but I'll, I'll just say football. Working with a certain type of football club, they were interested in adapting the warm-up because they conceded goals early. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a particular problem for them. And, and equally, a lot of teams concede goals in the last few minutes of a half. And so that's another issue about energy management. But they wanted, a, they wanted a fast start, so they wanted to, to hit the ground running. And so we, we talked about modifying the, the warm-up based on hormonal profiles. And when I actually asked them what they did, it was what, what I termed the Bill Beaumont warm-up, which is sort of clap your hands and rub them together and take a big sharp intake of breath and off you go. Classic, old-fashioned warm-up. Possibly because they've just come from work <laughs> and they've just got changed and then they're competing for England. Mm. I don't know. Uh, but, but spoke of an amateur ideal as opposed to thinking, what do we want the warm-up to actually do? And so, yeah, the, the, the evidence is, is developing all the time. Just, just this week, for example, found that static and dynamic stretching, so that's just holding a stretch or, or doing some sort of lunge-based type activities, that doesn't really add much to warm-up than just warming up properly, just getting warmer. Five years ago, we would have looked at that and said, well, that's standard practice. The boundaries are always moving forward. And what about players letting off steam in other ways, and athletes as well, particularly as we were talking about before on a sort of seven, eight-year journey? There might be a month where they need to go off and drink and eat Big Macs. Is that good for them, actually, in the long term, that they have some pressure valve release? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a footballer and you're training all season, there's very little let-up from game to training to game to training. Mid-winter break, for example, or off-season, they don't get an awful lot of time anyway. I suppose the flip of that is that ultimately you can only be an athlete for so long. Age will get the better of you at some point, so do it whilst you can. But yeah, we'd always try and encourage people to, to get full restoration and recovery at the end of a season athletes players they often have this obsessive nature anyway so they have to be encouraged to do that properly (laughs) as opposed they might just jump to the next season and the next goal too early physiologically that's not healthy you need some sort of period of rest and recovery and that can take a long time the marathon for example you don't see marathoners marathon every week because it's expensive and they and it takes a lot to recover Uh, and so sometimes when, when I, if, if I remember an occasion I sat with a long distance athlete and they were obsessing about the details and oh, they've got this training time but I, I didn't quite hit those goals and, and, I, and I've got this next one coming up, what should I do in between and, and they're obsessing about some of the detail and, and rather than try and problem solve it, you know, to step back from it and think what's going on here, somebody's caught in a downward spiral, the best thing for me to t- say is go to the cinema. It's funny, I remember actually our tutor at university telling us exactly that thing in the week before our exams. It's basically stop revising and go, go out drinking was essentially his advice. Because there comes to a point where you're so focused on this end thing mm. that you'll frustrate yourself. And there's only so much more you can learn in the next four days. Yeah. So what will be will be. Yeah. Is there ever an element of that when you get close to the race though? How, wh- where's, where's the point at which you never say go to the cinema? <laughs> I mean, I imagine two months out from the Olympics? Um, not necessarily. The interesting thing about athletes is that they taper before a big competition. So they do less. For energetic sports, the ones that hurt, you, you drop the training volume down by about 50%. So they've got time on their hands. So if they're having to get up at six o'clock in the morning and row for three hours and then get, get go and get some breakfast, 
go and do some stretching or see the physiotherapist and then they get there in the weight room and then they have some lunch and then they have a sleep and then they train again they've got a routine you take half of that away they don't know what to do with themselves plus they get the libido back by the way <laughs> the actual sense of you've got to fill that time rather than them just getting into this space of what's going to happen this anticipation of the future focus and results what's happening what's going to go on um, you need to busy them and so games rooms at a big competition on the holding camps just before they go into a big competition games rooms little events quizzes those sorts of things they they really help uh, uh, fill the timetable up and busy their mind and not uh, let them get overwhelmed by the prospect of, of performing I mean the dream of sporting achievement is that anyone could do it within certain genetic parameters as you've already explained but you know within reason if at the age of 16 17 18 you set out to be a champion in something you've got a good chance of doing well is that really true or amongst the people that you've seen who have gone on to medal at the olympics do they have something in common that does make them sort of superhuman there's something different about them Hmm. i think there would be a select group of people that the the minute you meet them for the first time uh you you know that you're in the presence of greatness and that's that is palpable and it's difficult to know what that is sometimes it's uh, their hunger sometimes it's their humility uh, but they have this sort of sense of uh, of presence that you can just feel uh, i went over to steve redgrave down at henley on thames in 1998 six foot four so he's much bigger than i am and uh, it, you know more deltoids than you need uh, for a human uh, so he's an imposing figure, four-time Olympic champion. I rock up and I say, hi, I'm Steve, I'm your new physiologist, thinking at least we've got the same first name. I hope that's going to ring a bell. And he just looked down at me and barks, are you going to make me go faster? That's a guy who's obsessed and focused. And years afterwards, I, I asked him, why did you ask me that question? And he said, I just needed to know that, that you weren't going to be annoying so many people would rock up and tell him what to do um actually in the in the moment i said i i said i don't know but i'd love to know why you keep winning if i can work that out i'll share it with you and he just grunted and went off and paddled but there is something about a select few the greats where that comes from is still fascinating is there a danger of pushing people too hard Absolutely, but don't forget that that if someone wants to improve their fitness or bolster their their ability to cope, that you have to apply a stressor. The the fundamental principle here, we take this idea from the military, um, is that hard training gives easy combat. Easy training leads to hard combat. And so if you're thinking about the, the destination in mind, what do you want? That We call it progressive overload for for physical training so if you lift a weight five kilogram weight on one day and then the next day you might have to lift a six kilogram weight to get the same level of stimulus you have to do that in a similar way applying pressure to to people and if if you had a table tennis player or a cricket uh, batsman and they're in the nets or they're in the, the hall and there's nobody about there's no crowd to up the nerves then you've got to apply a little consequence to that. Or you might gather people around, or for the critical lead-in events, you might get some some people that they really care about. Because when you've got 80,000 people, they're just blank faces in some ways. But it's a bit like a best man speech. If there are 
your family and friends and people are all looking you care about all of those people mm. they matter so get them around the table tennis table get them right by the cricket nets that ups the ante and and bolsters the training makes that training harder uh, so that you can get into a competition you go yeah okay i'm ready for this because i've experienced so many uh, and probably more significant um, events before have you ever pushed someone too much yeah what happened cried got injured vomited as a coach you're very sensitive of that uh, constantly i had a lot of writer's block when i was authoring the training program for the first time because you're anything you put down there a 500 meter all-out effort it's going to hurt a lot and you have to be really confident that that's going to be the best thing for them um so you you're delicately balancing their effort and the, the return you'll get from it uh, put sessions in place and somebody has just 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 fatigued during the session or they've picked up an injury and i'm starting to think that was that my fault it but sort of was your fault well it potentially was yeah if you've done the due diligence if you've thought it through carefully and done the prudent bit about managing the risks then you can only ever try but also potentially discussing it with the athlete in advance. This is what I'm thinking. This is why. This is the, what I need you to focus on. So they're in it. They own it as well. Mm. But Do they sometimes want to be pushed more than you're pushing them as well? It's difficult. Once, once it's written down on a training program, once it's written in black and white, it's very easy to say, right, I know we said 10 efforts, but I want you to do nine. Let's just leave the last one. And they'll go, okay. Um, it's difficult to say one more, one more. Not only because you're playing with their effort, but also you're potentially overtraining them. And they're not that receptive to pounding themselves more than was on the training program. One of the critical things is that if you've never got injured or overtrained as an athlete, you probably haven't pushed yourself hard enough. Perhaps it doesn't matter for snooker. Perhaps it doesn't matter as much for football, where it's technical, it's highly skilled. But increasing the margins will, will increase in, in team sports um, and maybe in skill sports. But if you've never injured yourself, you haven't trained hard enough. That's the reality of it. If you're constantly getting injured, then you're training too hard. You're, you never know until you break. And actually, some of the best lessons athletes will ever take will be when, they, when it's all gone wrong or they've got injured just before the Olympics and they've learned. So Jess uh, broke her ankle uh, before the 2008 Games. She was a favourite for a medal, at least. Uh, that was a time when she learned so much. She was so open-minded about thinking, how am I going to do this four years later in London? Maybe she wouldn't have got to London in the same mindset and condition if she hadn't have had that setback. And finally, talk to me about what happens afterwards. Talk to me about post-Olympic blues. That's something you now build into a training programme, isn't it? Which strikes me as quite a modern approach. Yeah, very, very much so. Every high... Everything, any significant moment has, has to have a reciprocal to it. It will, it will do. Maybe it's Newton's third law, I don't know. But you, you will have the lull after the storm for the staff, for the coaches and the system. There was a real lull after London, for example, and going again, thinking London was probably the best day I've ever had in work ever. And that's the peak of my life. <laughs> so you had to re-galvanise people to a new appetising goal and think about the common purpose that pe- a, a team had. And it never will be that good for some of those people. If you've won gold at the Olympics, you mm. probably are at the peak of your fitness. You probably won't win gold at the next Olympics. So that yeah. probably is it. They know that. 
what do you say to them to make that okay? But people are competitive. People are want to achieve. They want to they they want to go again. Um, they want to have a new goal in place. It's about resetting the boundary. What what would achievement look like? Uh, for Jess, she had a baby, and she wasn't Jess Ennis anymore. She was Jess Ennis Hill. She was married. She had a life. Uh, she put the challenge on the table for us, not just about uh, reprogram this training program, but I want to do it in half a day, and so I can be with my son. That's a physiological challenge, and, uh, but I want to to get back to see if I can get to to become a, a medalist again. That's her new goal, and then she was satisfied. And and then thinking about well, what's the new goal beyond sport, which is often harder for athletes yeah. and and business people when they've achieved something and then going again is finding and culturing a new identity, which I think you have to work out beforehand. Dr. Steve Ingham. Steve now coaches business people and arts performers as well as athletes. You can find out more at supportingchampions.co.uk. And Steve has a podcast too, also called Supporting Champions. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, My thanks as well to Cheltenham Science Festival for bringing us together. Still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. Let's get intimate with Alex Fox. It's the foxhole, everybody. Hello, Alex. Greetings, greetings, Ollie, and welcome to the section where we talk about beatings uh, in a consensual manner and meetings between people's bits of meat. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad, thank you. Uh, although I'm slightly concerned by the results of a recent survey that's been uh, carried out by an adult toy firm called plsrx.com, which has told me that the average time it takes for British couples to lose the spark in their relationship and things for things to go from sizzling to rather more fizzling is just three years, three months, three weeks and one day. I mean, you've talked before, actually, haven't you, in advice to some of our listeners about diarising sex, and often that's because it's about making sure that you're both in the mood, you've set aside time for each other. But actually, there is an administrative boon to that as well, isn't there? That it takes the pressure off anything unexpected or having to perform or thinking how clean am I or whatever it is. If you know, oh, it's, it's Wednesday when I have sex today. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that it's not very romantic mm. to diarise sex. I mean, as I said, it, it sounded horrendously bureaucratic. Well, actually, it can be part of the excitement because if you know when sex is going to happen, if you know that you've agreed to make <laughs> that your special night, then it gives you a chance to build up to it and prepare to, for it and to look forward to it. And on the flip side as well... Just making small changes to alter your habits. If you are somebody who automatically gets home from work, sits on, on in front of the TV and gets so engrossed in the remote control that you're becoming more emotionally and physically remote from your partner, then just small changes to your day-to-day life can make all the difference. For example, agree with your significant other that rather than heading straight for the settee, when you both get home, you'll go for a little walk around the block. It doesn't have to be more than 10 or 15 minutes just that stroll around in the open air can help reinvigorate you revitalize you if you hold hands together then you're kind of relinking each other romantically Uh, and it might also be helpful to make a pact that whilst you are out in the open that's when you get any worries rants or stresses about your day out in the open you get that off your chest and you agree that once you're back home and you close that front door you're leaving it outside it's done for the night 
and you're committing to relaxing with each other and enjoying each other's company. Or just increase the concentration by volume of the alcohol you're sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, our question of the week now, uh, which is sponsored by our friends at mycondom.com. Who sell Tenga eggs? They're little squidgy soft silicone eggs which are textured inside and they're designed to be popped on the penis and used as a wanking aid. But you can also... (laughs) But wait, there's more. (laughs) It's actually got nothing to do with the butt. You can turn them inside out and lube them up and actually use them on um, a vulva as well. You can use them on a female body for extra sensory impact. Our question of the week is from a man who has chosen to remain anonymous, uh, because you can, and he says... In my alone time, I'm fond of clips with sensory deprivation. Uh, And then he puts in parentheses here, cuffs, blindfolds, pinwheels, etc. What's a pinwheel, Alex? Uh, Also known as a Wartenberg wheel, it's a stainless steel wheel with evenly spaced pins on it fixed to a handle and you roll it across someone's skin. Uh, It was originally invented um, by a guy called Robert Wartenberg and it was supposed to test nerve reactions but now a lot of people use them in S&M and sex play as kind of, they can give like little spiky sensations all over the body. So when you say pins, I mean, it's not like a drawing pin, presumably it's like half that length, is it? Or... They come in different sizes and different degrees of sharpness, but it's like be, it's it's a little wheel with lots of little proddy bits on. Well done for not saying pricks. <laughs> I feel sad that I managed to miss an opportunity for a prick <laughs> joke there. What's wrong with me? But I think don't... we should take my temperature. I'm clearly unwell. But they don't draw blood, crucially, I guess. Not unless you press really hard. Okay. Um, anyway, yes, he's into that. But I'm unsure of how to bring it up with my partner. I'm not sure she'd be into that. Uh, do you have any tips, Alex, on introducing sensory deprivation and where we can take things beyond a Wartenberg wheel? Well, first up, let's discuss what sensory deprivation is. It is reducing one or more of the senses for one of three reasons. The first is to enhance other senses. So, for example, if you take someone's sight away, it might make their hearing more keen or at least make them focus more on what they're hearing, what they're smelling, what they're tasting. Um, It's also a way of exciting somebody. If you can't see what's going to happen to you next, then that can build up the anticipation and be quite thrilling. And thirdly, it can be used as a form of control as part of a sub-dom power scenario. Mm -hmm. So if one person is in charge of another, then they might take away some of their senses because they have the power to do that. (laughs) And it is, I mean, I'm scared. It is usually sight or hearing, isn't it? It's not usually smell that gets taken away. Is it in a game? Actually, you can mess with people's sense of smell. I've never seen that depicted in a sexual situation. Someone with a peg on their nose. I have seen... Well, you've seen everything. (laughs) I have, I have. I've seen dominatrixes in clubs use clothes pegs on their slaves' noses to restrict their sense of smell because for a lot of people, the scent of sexual items like leather or rubber or lube or even body odour and sexual fluids is really exciting. So if you take away that sense of smell um, as part of the power dynamic, then that can be a real way of inflicting your will upon someone else. I've also seen people fill stockings with uh, very pungent foods like fresh ginger or fresh mint uh, and tie them around people's noses so that they can't smell anything else. 
or uh, take off socks or shoes that they've been wearing all day and tie those to a submissive person's face so that they are forced to breathe in the scent of the scent of someone's foot. Um, if you really want to make things extreme, there are bits of kit that you can get on kink markets that allow you essentially to siphon your farts directly into someone's nasal passages. Oh yeah, well, we all know about those. When you say <laughs> kink markets... Is that an internet thing? It's not really like a bring and buy sale, is it? Oh, there are bring and buy sales. Yeah, there's lots of um, real live kink markets in the UK. You can buy tons of stuff online. Is it like a car boot? Is there someone just selling cups of tea as well? <laughs> lots of them Pickled are really, veg. really down to earth, and that's part of what's good about them. Uh, there's a really famous one called London Alternative Market. Um, in Birmingham, there's Birmingham Bazaar Bazaar. Uh, and it means that you can just go and chat to people in a laid back fashion about uh, getting tips, getting hints, exchanging information. If you're a beginner and you want to go and see what's on offer and then get some really good informed advice on how to use it, um, then that kind of market can be a great way of uh, getting some peer-to-peer education. And it's a fun way of making friends who have the same interests as you, who might be able to tell you about nearby clubs or maybe go along with you. Okay, so our questioner says he's unsure that his partner is going to be into this. How should he broach it? Well, I think there's two main aspects of bringing up the idea of sensory deprivation with a beginner especially if you're not quite sure that they'd be keen the first thing is do it really slowly and easily don't make it too intimidating and secondly is make it playful I spoke to my friend Renee who was manager of Shush Women's Exotic Emporium and she told me that a blindfold is a really easy way of starting with sensory deprivation but you can make it even less intimidating by doing something like using a soft silk scarf instead of an an Mm. actual official eye mask Uh, and rather than fastening it you could get your partner just to lay on their back and just drape it over their eyes so they they know they don't have to undo any knots Mm. they don't have to untie any bows they can take it straight away off straight away if they want to another option if your partner is female or indeed male and wearing a dress is just to flip the skirt up over their head Again, it feels quite natural, it's not too scary, and they can take it straight away themselves if they want to. Mm -hmm. So making things sort of easy, approachable, not too scary in that way is a good way to start. Both of those things, I know you always say you should discuss these things and they should be consensual, but actually both of those things strike me as things that playfully you could almost introduce in the act without having discussed it in advance because they're so light and entry level. Once your partner is blindfolded or their sight is restricted in some ways, things you might want to try include um, dragging the cold, prongs of a fork over their naked skin very softly Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a spoon that you've either warmed up in hot mint tea or that you've uh, had in a glass full of ice to make it cold Um, I like to put necklaces metal necklaces in the fridge and then you can um, pull those over someone's skin and and they can feel the the chilling chains there hairbrushes either the back of them for very light spanking if you think that your partner would be into that or uh, pressing the spines of a hairbrush over them you could use different textures of fabric so say a furry coat or a silky pair of pants or a leather glove don't forget that because your partner's sight is inhibited at the moment they can't see what you're touching them with which not only makes this a fun guessing game but also means that they won't be able to see how fucking ridiculous it looks (laughs) that you are prodding them with a fork as though they're a Cumberland sausage to see whether they're done. And when he says taking it beyond a Wartenberg wheel... Ooh, now this is where things get really squelchy and exciting for me because I've got so many ideas for you, Ollie. I can hardly contain them. He implies more extreme. Well, 
you could actually connect that stainless steel wheel to an electrostimulation kit. So as well as being pricky and pokey, it would also deliver a mild electric shock, which That's you can I mean, control. As you're talking, with, I'm, I'm measuring simple. my own level of interest in this. Because <laughs> like the fork down the skin, I was kind of like, yeah, I can see that might be sexy. Yeah, no, electric shocks, no. Yeah, this is less fork and more yeah. pitchfork. More fuck! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, another thing that you might want to play with is VR headsets, virtual reality headsets. Oh, I think that I Ollie, Ollie P. Ollie yeah. <laughs> well, these can make you feel like you're floating in space or that you're inside a tank of water. You can put your sensorily deprived partner in whatever environment, pretty much within reason, that you want to uh, whisk them away to virtually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be incredibly exciting, but very, very disorienting. Mm-hmm. I also asked the folks at uberkinky.co.uk for their input, and they said that if you're into sensory deprivation and you want to you wanna turn things up a little bit more, then you might look into restricting movement um, with something like bondage tape, which sticks to itself, or if if you really want to be XXX rated, get pallet wrap, you know, like the giant uh, rolls of essentially cling film that usually go over wooden pallets. Yes, I used to it to uh, wrap my office desk whilst we moved out of our house. Well, next time, maybe you can uh, lay your lover over the office desk and fix them to it. Alex, thank you. Uh, and thank you for explaining why there is a metal necklace in your fridge. I'll know now next time I go looking for the orange juice. Uh, if you have a question of sex for Alex, what do you need to do with it? All you need to do is head over to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and then hit feedback. You can give your name if you want, or you can remain mysterious. And if you want all the tools you may need to have sex, visit mycondom.com. Where if you use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, then my foxhole moles will get 15% off everything there. Well, that is very nearly it for this week's Mon Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Dan, who says, Ollie, I love the show. I've consumed all the free media you've created over the years, so it was about time I brought something to the table. I've sent you some beer money, only two drinks between three, so please share. I can't recall if there is a man ambassador for Tunbridge Wells. If there isn't, please could I take the title? Well, there wasn't, Dan. There is now. You are now officially Manbassador for the birthplace of Helen Zaltzman, Royal Tunbridge Wells. Congratulations. Uh, Music now, and our theme is by the musical wizards known as Django Django, and here comes our record of the week. It's by Self Esteem, it's called Wrestling, and it's the best thing to come out of Margate for decades. Stream it now. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday.
So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.